If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. In this pertinent time, independent media shining a light on alternate perspectives and issues, and often pushing back against the skewed dominant narratives, is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and inspired by our conversations, it would help us out so much to have your direct support through a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. As you may have noticed, we don't do ads on the show anymore, and I really hope we can keep it this way so our incentives remain aligned with just sharing honest and critical conversations with our listeners. All donations go towards sustaining the work of our four-person team, supporting the speaker honorariums for our guests, as well as compensating our ecosystem of artists who create the unique cover for each episode and themselves are helping to shift culture through their artwork. If you want to help keep our show alive, join us as a co-creator today at greendreamer.com slash support. And so if you're actually targeting migrants as the source of the problem, like if we're thinking about climate migration as one of those amplified threats in the DOD's or the Department of Defense's point of view, then you're never actually going to solve the problem itself because you're only addressing the symptom of the problem and not the root cause. Today, we're speaking with A. Naomi Paik, an interdisciplinary scholar whose work examines the relationship between law and cultural politics, centering racism, state violence, and the limits of citizenship to secure rights and social equity. Paik is the author of three books, most recently Bands, Walls, Raids, Sanctuary, and she's an associate professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on topics including immigration, U.S. imperialism, comparative ethnic studies, women of color feminisms, carceral spaces, and racial violence. I've always been interested in basically speaking very broadly in state violence. Right. So how is it that the state or the government at different scales ends up targeting different kinds of people for what they are, whether it's migrants or black Americans or women? I've been really interested in how the state executes and justifies this kind of targeting against its own people and as well as people who are not its citizens. So I think in order to understand state violence, you have to look at the law. And so I think that's kind of where it started. And I think where it deepened, where these kinds of questions deepened for me was honestly September 11th. I was living in New York for years before and also years after. So I lived in New York for about 15 years. And so I think being in the city during that time and then seeing how this very devastating, tragic, overwhelming event then becomes quickly harnessed and mobilized in order to execute even more violence against other kinds of people who didn't have anything to do with it was really deeply painful, but then also deeply motivating in terms of thinking about how these different mechanisms work together in terms of the cultural politics side. How do you mobilize millions of people to support 
a very violent agenda that is going to basically change the world, right? How do you mobilize all of that? And then how do you execute it through different legal mechanisms? I think was also really important to my thinking about, okay, I have, I really need to take, if I need to take the state seriously, then I need to understand it on its own terms in terms of looking at the law. And it's all in service of, I'm kind of motivated by things that I hate. (laughs) So like, you know, (laughs) destructive foreign policies and warfare and all of these things, right? So a lot of that motivation is seeing these terrible things happening and not wanting them to happen again and wanting to uproot them. So in order to uproot them, we have to understand them really deeply. And so I think that's kind of where my interest in the kind of intersection of law, state violence, and cultural politics has come together. Yeah. And it sounds like as you start to let your curiosities lead the way to understand things as deeply as possible, you really see how all of these different facets of our society are very much enmeshed and related. So we're going to unpack, of course, a lot of these things in our conversation today. The concept of security is one that I'm really curious to deconstruct with you, especially in discourses on sustainability. There are increasing acknowledgments that given the reality of the climate crisis and the sixth mass extinction and the systemic exploitation of our lands and waters, more and more people are facing concerns with For example, a lack of access to clean water or nutritious foods or safe environments to live in. And these concerns often get framed as issues of national security and therefore sometimes used to justify the increase in the national security budget. So how would you disentangle these threads to perhaps differentiate between what most people might yearn for in terms of security and safety and then how nation state institutions conceptualize this differently and what they end up doing under that guise? Yeah, no, this is such a good question. And I think on the one hand, many sectors of government and the state are basically doubling down on not acknowledging the problems that we're facing in terms of climate change, environmental destruction, etc. But one agency that is fully cognizant of the problems that we're facing with the climate crisis and environmental devastation and all the fallouts from our extractive economies is the U.S. military, right, Mm -hmm. and the Department of Defense. And so this approach is what someone like Christian Parenti calls the politics of the armed lifeboat, right? And it's so we acknowledge that the climate crisis and environmental devastation is uprooting many millions of people across the world through rising oceans, through extractive economies that pollute the land and waters from the loss of local economies, like all of these different crises are kind of converging and they're being amplified. I think the U.S. military calls the climate crisis a a threat amplifier, right? Mm -hmm. So it takes already existing threats, i.e. things like migrants, (laughs) as if we had nothing to do with why people are forced to move in the first place. And then the climate crisis amplifies it. So they have a clear kind of sense that this is an actual problem and they are preparing for it. But they're preparing for it by, as you just mentioned, like investing more and more into security infrastructures, you know, thinking about how do we keep the migrants from coming to where we are, right? How do we keep them in their place, right? They shouldn't be allowed to actually move for their own survival purposes. And so if you're actually targeting migrants as the source of the problem, like if we're thinking about climate migration as one of those amplified threats in the DOD's or the Department of Defense's point of view, then you're never actually going to solve the problem itself because you're only addressing the symptom of the problem and not the root cause. The root cause of the problem is extractive economies. It is climate change. It's our emissions. It's the way our economy is built globally, thinking that wealth accumulation can grow infinitely on a finite planet. And so this approach, like the overinvestment in securitization and not addressing, but in fact, making the root causes worse, right? So like investing into the very agency that is the world's largest polluter is making the problem worse. It is mutually destructive. It's not only homicidal against people who are being displaced from their homes because of the climate crisis or because of extractive economies. It's not only homicidal against them. It is also ensuring mutually assured destruction, right? Because there is no securitizing our way out of this problem. And in fact, the securitization of the climate crisis is going to make the problem worse. And I think one of the issues with this is that 
if we take a security approach to everything, then we're never going to address the root causes because the security infrastructure is part of the problem itself. So the security kind of apparatus cannot actually address the root problems. And I would say that this is also the case for uh, the United States as a whole, as well as other kinds of institutions like the World Trade Organizations, et cetera. They can't address the root cause of the problem without kind of advocating for the dismantling of their own institutional structures. It's actually not possible. Right. And I guess it's also worth questioning what security even means, like security for who? Because I think for most people, when people when we think about what is it that makes me feel safe and secure, we think about having supportive relationships, having safe housing, having secure access to nutritious foods and water. And how is that aligned or misaligned with how the nation state envisions security and the plans that they carry out? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. This question of security for whom? And what does even security mean to begin with? So security, like even just, this is going to feel a little abstract because it is, but the concept of security itself, for it to make sense, it relies on, it depends on this kind of persistent and intransigent threat of insecurity. And you can't securitize your way out of that problem. Security can never actually uproot this root causes of insecurity. It's actually not possible. And as long as we're going to be in an integrated world and an interdependent world, which we absolutely already are from the moment that a a person or any kind of life form is born, it is interdependent with many other things. So as long as we're living in an interdependent world, you cannot actually securitize everything, right? You can't get rid of insecurity. But the fact that insecurity is always going to exist just amplifies the security state. It feeds into this idea that, oh, well, without national security or without these security apparatuses and infrastructures, then you will be unsafe. There are threats out there that will uproot you and that are a threat to your way of life, et cetera. And if you think about the way the United States has rolled with its national security doctrine, it's almost always justified by (laughs) self-defense. When in fact, it is preemptive. So we enact violence through many different means, not only through direct military confrontations, but, you know, arms sales, through economic arrangements, etc. All of these are kind of preemptively trying to secure our national security. So when we're constantly like this, this perception or this framing of security as the thing that we need to address the insecurity of the world is never going to work. But I think all of the things that you mentioned, that when we think about what do people actually need to feel grounded, right, to feel whole, things like affirming social relationships, right, things like having the basics of what you need to live, like food, housing, clean water, I would even say education, all of these things are are the fundamentals for us to exist with each other. Those are the things that we need to be investing in. And so it seems to me that the framework of security is not the right framework for thinking about what are the things that living people and living things need in order to coexist with each other. And you can't ever get rid of like the concept of insecurity completely, but there are certainly sources of insecurity in our daily lives that we can absolutely address, like making sure that everyone has health care if they need it, making sure that everyone has a place to live if they need it, that people have sufficient and healthy food, all of the things that you just mentioned. Yeah, we've talked before on the show about this idea that problem creation and then problem solving ends up almost always being more profitable than problem prevention in the first place. So I kind of see this pattern here in that through various forces, whether political or economic or corporate monopolization and so forth, creating a sense of insecurity for so many people and then stepping in to say this industry of security is what you need to address that this problem creation and then problem solving ends up being more profitable for all of those who are in charge of these institutions and systems compared to just getting to the root cause of the crises to begin with. So there's certainly a lot of parallels we can see here with other crises that we've addressed on the show before. And the United States as one of the most powerful 
empires and nation states in the world today is often known as a nation of immigrants. And I know you take issue with this dominant narrative, even though there are you know elements of truth there. But how do you think it obscures or prevents people's true understandings of what it might mean to love and care for this land? And to weave in our earlier conversation, how does this social construct of a nationalized identity that a lot of people have taken to heart, I believe sometimes to feel a sense of belonging, which is a deep human need as well. But how has this ended up feeding into justifying what's being done in the name of national security? Yeah, this is such a great question. Again, I do. I have a a critique of the narrative of the nation of immigrants, which many people share, and that it's a really nice and affirming and it seems to be a very welcoming kind of narrative, but it's in fact a fiction, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. we've never really been a nation of immigrants. What we are is a settler colonial nation, right? And I'm riffing off of a bunch of people here, but someone who I'd like to really draw your attention to is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who just wrote a book called Not a Nation of Immigrants. And so on the one hand, I will say this, On the one hand, I understand why many people who have immigrated from somewhere else and settled in the United States really embrace this nation of immigrants narrative, right? Because it it does give them a way to feel included into something else, into the place where they have moved to and tried to become a part of and built their lives in. I totally get that. Like my own family has that story. But what the nation of immigrants as a kind of dominant narrative does is it papers over and really occludes the violent history of settler colonialism in the United States. And what I mean by that is that some of the earliest settlers to create the United States to begin with were not here just to immigrate and integrate with what was already going on here, right? They came here to destroy the people and the civilizations that were already existing on this land and replace it with their own new permanent and reproductive new society, right? So it's not just about exterminating all the indigenous civilizations that are, are trying to, it's not, it has not been successful, but trying to exterminate all the indigenous civilizations that were already here. But it's also about very much about racially containing basically everyone else. That is the history of the United States, that the kind of national identity has been built around kind of European white nationalism that's also very patriarchal and also rooted in property ownership. That is like the core kind of components of the U.S. national identity And so on the one hand, the nation of immigrants narrative kind of papers over that. And I think the other thing that it does is that it also papers over the U.S. history of immigration as well. So Mm -hmm. the U.S. history of immigration, if you look at some of our earliest immigrant restriction laws, they've always been deeply rooted in racism, patriarchal subordination, and capitalist labor exploitation. And what the nation of immigrants narrative does is it makes it seem as though It twists all of the actual living histories of racialized exclusion and turns the U.S. into a narrative of the land of opportunity where different people from around the world can come and build their lives and be successful. And that has just not ever really been the case, right? Historically, in terms of how we have recruited racialized labor from Latin America, Africa, and Asia, right? It's always been through a logic of labor exploitation and not through welcoming difference and others into a nation of immigrants. Yeah, all of that is really important to bring to light so that we don't forget a lot of the complex and dark uh, history that has been a part of the founding of the so-called United States. And we recognize today that there are increasing economic disparities in the world. And that same trend, of course, has been true for those who live within the United States as well. And I worry about people's real pains and struggles being weaponized and misled and leading to a lot of the surface level divisions that we see that then prevent people from recognizing a lot of those underlying and shared hardships. So I wonder if you could take us beneath the surface here to address some of the prevailing talking points against immigration that really might be a weaponization of the real economic struggles that a lot of working class families and individuals are facing today. So I think we can think about some of the prevailing myths that end up pitting working class people in the United States, like citizens of the United States, against working class 
often people of color coming from elsewhere, basically third world migrants, right? And there's all these different kinds of ways that people have been pitted against each other. So one is that, you know, migrants take our jobs. Okay, so that's one. From the flip side, another one is, well, at least immigrants commit fewer crimes, you know, so we're kind of like better contributors to society than the people you've already got. Both of these, first of all, are myths. And second of all, they are both pitting two groups of people or different kinds of people who might be differently situated, but actually have way more in common than they're being allowed to see. And part of this has to do with the fact that things like racism, and nationalism and patriarchy, all of these kinds of hierarchical power systems don't need to explain themselves. They're always already available as these ways that we kind of understand the world because we're, we're born into a world that's so thoroughly structured by these hierarchies that they don't have to explain themselves. And on the other hand, it takes quite a bit of explaining, maybe not quite a bit, but it does take some level of explaining how people who are on the surface seem very different and maybe even competing against each other. And they're competing against each other for basic survival resources, actually share common goals, common struggles. And this is the most important part, common sources of their subjugation, right? So let's think about the migrants take our jobs, right? So We see, you know, as you mentioned, we have increasing equality, not only in the U.S., but around the world. This did not just happen, right? This is kind of architected and by design through things like an integrated world market, like basically economic globalization, where wealthy corporations can move their production to wherever labor costs are cheaper, right? So that's when you have lots of corporations moving their production sites to places like China, places like Mexico, Jamaica, whatever, right? And that's in order to lower labor costs. This is where you see jobs leaving places like Detroit or other kind of urban centers in the United States that have strong unions, et cetera, that drive labor costs up, right? So if you kind of look at it that way, you're seeing that economic globalization was enacted in part to break up the working class and to break up working class power. So you move the sites of production from places where working class power is quite strong to places where it's unregulated and quite weak. This is an attack on working class people across different spaces, but it also means that those working class people across seemingly divided by vast distances and language and cultures and all this kind of thing actually have kind of a common source of their of their problems. So Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about it this way. She says that at the same moment that certain economies like Detroit's or South Central LA were being decimated by the movement of capital away from these local economies elsewhere, at the, so at the same time that people are being displaced in place in the United States, there are millions of other working people elsewhere in the world who are being displaced from their homes and actually end up having to follow capital. Right. And so that's where we see kind of an increase in labor migration as well. And so if we can see how these different kinds of groups of people are actually being affected by these much bigger systems that are bigger than any one of us, but that affect millions of people globally, we could actually form a like a huge power base among all these people who are being mutually basically screwed over, right, by finance capital, by economic globalization and so on. But like I said, It's not necessarily obvious how these different groups of people are connected to each other. So it doesn't make as much sense right away to a person in the same way that a kind of nationalist discourse would. Like we have to be protectionist for the local economy. And that means being anti-immigrant or anti-migrant, right? It takes more explaining to kind of unpack all of these complex connections. So I think that's a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And relatedly, something you've shared before that really stuck with me is that immigration policy works as labor discipline. In other words, as you say, the legal system of migration acts as a disciplinary function around work and labor extraction, end quote. Mm -hmm. Perhaps this speaks to the fallacy of the idea that banning migration can preserve job opportunities inside of one's borders, because it may seem counterintuitive, but if I'm getting this right, it's actually delegitimizing migration that preserves the devalued status of quote-unquote undocumented workers that then make their cheapened labor even possible to exploit for the corporations that are going to try to cheapen the cost of their inputs no matter what. So I don't know if this makes sense, but what else would you add here? 
Yeah, so I would say immigration policy is labor policy, first of all. Like, even from the very beginning, there's always going to be a tension between the desire of capitalists, basically corporations, very wealthy individuals, business owners, etc., to have the cheapest source of labor possible. And then the other tension of like still wanting to preserve a basically kind of a white national identity, right? And so the thing about capitalism is that it's always racial capitalism by nature, right? There is no version of capitalism that does not exploit already existing social differences like those of race, nation, gender, etc. Right. So this is why third world workers earn less or it's one of the reasons why capital moves to third world places or formerly decolonized nations in order to exploit the cheaper labor there. It's why people of color on average earn much less than white workers here, why women earn less than men, etc. Right. So there the capitalism exploits difference. And the thing about migrant, the exploitation of migrant labor is that What's really kind of great about it from a capitalist point of view is that as soon as that labor force starts, I don't know, organizing, asking for raises, asking for or demanding safer working conditions, what can you do? You can call the state in and deport all of those people. So deportation and deportability operates as a kind of check on the formation of organized labor and the demands of workers. And so you cannot actually deport all of the undocumented workers in the United States. And even if you tried, even if you could, it would not be a good thing for capitalists in the economy. The the point about deportability is not to actually deport everybody. That's a really big myth that you have to, that we have to grapple with as well. Mm, It's more of a threat. Yeah. It's more of like that labor discipline. It's the fact that you can be deported, right? And so you better keep your head down and not make too many waves, right? Just keep your head down, keep working, accept what you've got. Don't organize with with your with your colleagues. It's so true because we've learned on the show before about how the vast majority of the agriculture system relies on the work of quote unquote undocumented migrant workers. So if we had none of those people here, the entire food system would collapse and people would not be able to eat. And I'm sure this is true for other production systems as well. I think getting back to one of your earlier points, it's like, what do we need to feel like grounded and safe in our communities? We need like healthy, sustainable food, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that our, our entire food production system is based on labor exploitation is something that we need to talk a lot more about. What this also gets to is the unsustainability of capitalism itself, like food production under capitalism cannot be profitable. And so that's why you're seeing so many like agricultural workers and farmers across the world driven into debt are being driven off their lands, like in places as diverse as India and like rural, the rural Midwest, right? And so if food production cannot be made profitable under capitalism and requires massive exploitation of regular working people, then what are we actually doing in terms of this basic necessity for people to live? I think it's a way of getting into like a deeper critique of our economic system rooted in capitalism altogether. If we can't even produce the things that are necessary for life without exploiting millions and millions of people globally, then that's not really a sustainable economic system altogether. Absolutely. And so, I mean, this was security in a more real sense of the word. In terms of national security, the nation state carries this out in large part by way of the carceral system and the military industrial complex. And there are two intricately linked parts to this that I want to bring into this conversation. The first is how this punitive approach to security ends up disproportionately dispossessing those who are already the most insecure in the real sense of that word. And the second is, even within the military industrial complex itself, how we might recognize a similar injustice in the sense that the military labor needed to upkeep that entire system ends up both as the perpetrators of harm, as well as the victims of whatever conditions led them to the front lines of the most life-threatening and unsafe parts of militarism. Mm-hmm. The whole reason prison abolitionists and other social justice organizers kind of created the term prison industrial complex was to directly riff off 
the term military industrial complex. And to mm-hmm. think about how not only are we investing so much more of our social and economic and political in- energies into these wildly destructive systems that are fundamentally rooted in the supposedly legitimate use of state violence, but that they these systems are becoming so large and so complex that our economy and our economic production is actually completely reliant on them. And that is a real problem. So they're embedding themselves into the very fabric of our economic systems, as well as our social beliefs, right, and our political systems. And so that is one of the kind of main interventions of the very term prison industrial complex. And you're right that both of these systems, both in terms of where they're getting their labor from and who these two systems target, are very much shared. Right. So you can see this in, for example, you know, where does the military recruit its its new recruits? Right. It's often from the most disenfranchised communities, whether it's rural communities or urban, poor urban neighborhoods that have been subjected to organized abandonment. And it, it legitimately is a good job for many people. Like it has pensions, it has health care, it has a wage, sometimes depending on your position when you're applying for these are are trying to enroll enlist in the military, you can get certain kinds of bonuses. Like there are political economic reasons that people end up finding themselves recruited into these systems. These are the also the same kinds of areas that the prison industrial complex finds many of its uh, of new imprisoned people, right? And so you have to think about how these spaces and people targeted by organized abandonment, like the lack of social services, the decimation of public education, and our are also the same places that end up being subjected to massive organized violence, like policing, over-policing. And thinking about how both of these systems work together, both to target people who live in these communities and then also recruit from these communities. I'll also say that the military, the nature of the military-industrial complex is also kind of changing under late capitalism. So increasingly, the U.S. military is increasingly reliant on migrant laborers and also contracted laborers. So the Iraq war was called the first contractors war because there were more contractors over there than there were actually enlisted military people. This does a couple of things. First of all, it papers over, it obscures how many casualties the U.S. military endures, right? Because there are actually more contractor casualties than actually fully enlisted military casualties. It also obscures the size of the force that we have over there, right? So if you have more contractors than actual military people, you can say legitimately, we only have X number of military service people over wherever, when in fact, the actual size of the force is much bigger if you count all the contractors. And I think, you know, when we're selling off the use and ability to enact military violence elsewhere through these corporate arrangements, that is a real problem, not only for people who are being subject to these kinds of military violence, but it's also a deeply disturbing kind of attack on our very democratic systems, right? We don't even know who is doing the fighting ostensibly on our behalf for our national security. And we are recruiting people from all over the world to do everything from cooking and cleaning on military bases to actually doing the fighting. And so there's a lot of complicated things going on in this kind of conjoined imbrications between the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex. But again, if we kind of see this as where are you recruiting? Where are you targeting? If you if you can expose the kind of links of how people find themselves in these spaces and positions, social positions and economic positions, maybe that is a way of kind of addressing both at the same time. Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight because I think a lot of people are conscious of how major corporations have been outsourcing labor for manufacturing to quote-unquote developing nations where they might be able to take advantage of the undervalued costs of labor or as we talked about earlier, taking advantage of the undocumented status of labor inside the borders. 
But it's also really important to see the same pattern within the military industrial complex itself so that even as, for example, some political leaders might say that, you know, we're bringing back troops or whatever, that we can see through that not as a sign that it is reigning in its thirst for the expansion of control and power, but really just as an outsourcing of that labor of militarism itself. So it really just emphasizes how our pre-existing injustices are continually being exploited in new forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like these these new forms of and kind of more recent iterations of these systems of exploitation, they're exploiting, again, already existing kind of systems of power. So it's like we, our military basically recruits low-wage workers for things like cooking and cleaning and dock working from some of the poorest areas in the world, right? And we, we recruit certain kinds of laborers to do f- more feminized reproductive work. And we recruit other kinds of workers who come from more, um, they could be areas that recently endured civil wars or different kinds of insurgent struggles. We'll recruit those kinds of people to do things like interrogations or to do like combat. And so, for example, certain parts of Latin America have become recruitment sites for these private military and security companies to recruit interrogators. And so there's a lot of like really disturbing and harmful histories that are actually being monetized, right? That they're actually being exploited for the growth of this industry. Hmm. Really breaks my heart to think about all of this. And in light of everything we talked about, I want to highlight something you shared before, which I know I fall into the trap of in terms of how I write and communicate. Although I think for me, it's largely due to a lack of confidence in myself and therefore not wanting to sound too direct. But you talk about the perils of the passive voice, which really just means, for example, instead of saying Tom did XYZ to Alex, we say XYZ was done to Alex. And you emphasize that this passive framing has political and ideological implications especially when there are victims involved. I just had never been conscious of the deeper significance of the passive voice beyond knowing that it's not good practice for writing in general. But I would love if you could elaborate more on this and whether you've seen this done intentionally in any cases in order to maybe sanitize or obscure certain things within discourses on militarism, mass incarceration, or otherwise. Yeah, so this is a great question. And um, I think my students also kind of get like a little irritated with me sometimes when I, <laughs> when I mark their passive voice in their papers. And you know, it's not like it's, it's not just because it's, it's, it's better to write in, in the English language and in, in active voice, you know, that's not totally the point. That's a little bit of it. But it really is about the fact that passive voice allows us to obscure who is doing what who is doing the action. We need to be especially mindful of that when we're thinking about power systems and hierarchies and certain kinds of phenomenon that subject people to certain kinds of violence, even if it's the kind of violence that isn't enacted by like a gun or like any kind of direct use of force, right? So in thinking about whatever free trade agreements and things like that, it's not like poverty just happens in certain parts of the world and that wealth just is accumulated in other parts of the world. These are the end result of many different kinds of systems that exploit certain parts of the world for the wealth of other parts of the world or for of certain sectors of society for other sectors of society. What passive voice does is that it allows us to neglect who is behind the kinds of actions, right, that lead to the subjugation of many people. Some examples where I've seen this, I mean, you want to talk about law and cultural politics, the law is full of passive voice, right? Because there is no, there is no actor that is responsible for the harm, right? And so even thinking about certain kinds of legal decisions, like court cases, I've pointed this out in certain kinds of court cases, where basically, there is no actor doing the harm, even though whatever, 12 people ended up murdered. It's basically a way of saying, Bad things happened. Mistakes were made. Um, But no one actually inflicted the harm. No one actually made the mistake. No one actually put certain things in motion that led to the deaths of all of these people. And I think it's really important to identify, clearly identify who is doing certain kinds of actions, especially when it comes to systemic oppressions. 
Yeah, I I just really appreciated you naming that. And once we become aware of something, it becomes hard to unsee it. So I hope this will help myself and our listeners here as well to keep an eye out for that and to stay attuned to the more implicit messages that are being shared by the framing that we use or that other people may use in their messaging. And the last thing I would love for us to touch on is this idea of sanctuary as an abolitionist and liberatory way of understanding our path towards collective healing. So what do you mean when you talk about sanctuary, including what what that might mean for our more than human communities? And especially as you envision this as a space of healing inclusive of and forgiving of those who have broken the social contract and have committed acts of harm against others or many others, I wonder if you see this as necessary in order to disrupt this spiraling cycle of violence of self and collective destruction that we and our planet by extension seem to be entrenched within right now. This is where I'm trying to think about this much more deeply. So I started thinking more about sanctuary partly because of the the literal sanctuary movement in the United States for migrant justice. So not only from the 1980s in terms of thinking about Central American and other migrants who were being pushed out of their countries by U.S. foreign policy and then rejected by U.S. immigration policy as people that we were accountable and responsible to. And then also thinking about the kind of surge in sanctuary in the sanctuary movement of the new sanctuary movement under the massive escalation of deportation under Obama and then also, of course, under Trump. So that's what kind of got me thinking about it. And on the one hand, like I'm fully committed to the sanctuary framing of many migrant justice movements. And also, I kind of want to think about thinking through sanctuary as the most capacious and expansive way possible. So I'm trying to think about the kind of migrant justice slogan, sanctuary for all, sanctuary everywhere. What would it actually mean to create a sanctuary for all? And what would it mean for that sanctuary to exist literally everywhere, like planet wide? right? The way that we have thought about sanctuary historically and presently is often circumscribed by certain spaces, right? Like a sanctuary church or a sanctuary campus or a sanctuary city, right? Some kind of bounded jurisdiction or spatial demarcation. But if we're thinking about sanctuary everywhere, if we made the whole earth a sanctuary, what does that mean? That really radically opens up the potential of this concept, right? Similarly, Sanctuary for all in the migrant justice movement, who are they talking about? They're talking about any migrant who's under duress or threat of deportation or detention or being caught up at the border or being separated from their family, etc. Any migrant who is subject to targeting by the state. But what if we thought about sanctuary in its most capacious way possible and thought about even like the etymology of the term, which refers not just to sanctuary spaces for humans, but also sanctuary spaces for environments like, you know, marine sanctuaries, the Serengeti, different kinds of park spaces, green spaces, right? And then also for different kinds of species. So thinking about butterfly sanctuaries or like sanctuaries for megafauna that are endangered or something like that. If we think about sanctuary for all encompassing not just humans, but all living things, then like, what does that mean? It really radically opens up, like, why should we have a sanctuary for all? And the answer, like, if we think really deeply about this, it's because all lives are interdependent, not just all human lives, but humans depend on other living things. We depend on trees, right? We, we, we depend on fungi. We depend on other animals, right? We depend on so many different life forms. And that yet our kind of anthropocentric viewpoint doesn't take those things into account. And the other thing is, in the face of the climate crisis, in the face of ecological devastation, we are not going to have, none of us are going to have a future unless we make the whole earth a sanctuary for all. And by all, I mean all living things. There, There is no oceanic sanctuary where waste dumping and drilling cannot happen that does not affect all the other oceans right? They're all interconnected. And I think if we can think about other kinds of sanctuary spaces as being necessarily connected to everything else, it really opens up our imagination and our thinking about what is the potential of this concept. And if we truly create a sanctuary for all planet-wide, for all living things, 
we have eliminated the need for sanctuary spaces. We don't need certain jurisdictions where people are not under the threat of state violence for deportation or imprisonment or things like that, because everyone has what they need wherever they are, right, for their own survival and their own thriving. And so this does feel like kind of utopian, but I think that the actually existing sanctuary spaces that are out there in the world might give us some kind of models. And then also thinking about other kinds of movement spaces, other kinds of networks of relationships that people are forming with each other across space, showing the interconnections of different kinds of peoples together, I think gives us some kind of experiments to expand upon and to in service of creating, first of all, elucidating how interconnected we all are, and then also enacting a new kind of system of relationships to each other that really highlight giving people what they need where they are, getting to those root causes of uh, migration in the first place, getting to the root causes of people being deprived in the first place, and really thinking about what do we need in order for sanctuary to exist everywhere. I'm personally really moved by this vision of sanctuary for all, sanctuary everywhere. And like you mentioned, there are existing models that we can learn from, nurture, expand, and syndicate as well. In terms of translating some of the bigger picture things into practice, your work and the ways that you have been showing up as a teacher really inspires me to think about praxis and what it means to shape shift and embody the values that we wish to realize in the world. So given that you work within a formal educational institution and you understand the role of institutions as serving the function of just reproducing themselves and therefore being quite limited in terms of the deep societal transformations that they can support, I'm curious if you can share some examples of what you've been doing within the institution to push its boundaries and also what you feel like cannot be done within and needs to happen outside of. Yeah, that's such a good question. So on the one hand, it's really important, I think, for everyone to understand that institutions are not here to save us. So we shouldn't be looking to institutions to be doing the kind of liberatory, deep work that we need to be doing in order to save ourselves and the planet. And also institutions, it's not as though we can pretend that they don't exist and that we can just ignore what they're doing, etc., like on some level, there has to be some kind of engagement with institutions, even if not all sectors of movement spaces and movement builders are engaged in that work, there needs to be some kind of engagement with institutional structures. So I would say, you know, obviously I get my paycheck from an institution, like I serve certain roles within that institution and not all of them I'm necessarily comfortable with. I'm not comfortable with the fact that my that my position in the university is basically financed by student debt. This is not what I signed up for, right? But it is a fact of my position in it. And so on the one hand, I think I try to use my foot in the institution to kind of push back on it, to make claims on the institution based on being a tenured faculty member who's a little bit harder to fire than other kinds of people. So standing up for students when something happens, working with student organizations to push the university on certain agendas, like reallocating money that goes to the police department, to student mental health services, or to student refunds, something like that, right? Like there's already stuff, especially at universities, there's already so much stuff in motion by the students themselves. And sometimes my role would be to kind of bring those demands into other kinds of spaces where they're not necessarily present. Other ways that I'm trying to use the institution is obviously through my teaching and things like this, but also trying to use university resources against university purposes. So um, <laughs> like doing research projects with my students for a community organization. I feel like that is a good use of using the resources harnessed, including people. People can do things for each other. So using the space of the classroom, not only in service of the student's education, but also in service of promoting a community organization that is not necessarily in good relations with the institution itself. So there's different ways to that I've tried to navigate this, but I think uh, Stefano Harney and Fred Moten have this quote that says, the only possible relationship to the university today is a criminal one. 
And I really think of that as one of like my guiding lights in terms of how <laughs> I relate to my employers. And so it is my job, it is my role to steal things from the university, not just material things, whatever, but like stealing the knowledge, stealing the capacities that are provided by the institution and redirecting them away from institutional goals, but to actually living people and to things that are already in motion on the ground outside of those structures. And I think that's really important. I think for me, it's important to understand that I have that I am embedded in this institution and also that I am not of it at the same time. Wanna be behind every smile like a patch of freckles. I know your past wasn't fun. They did not deserve you. You should let me hold you. Let me put me arms around you. Me arms around you. What can I say? I've been on the road. Need someone to hold. Come out what is dark and lonely. Need someone to hold. What has been the most impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? I'm going to give another shouty to uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And I would also say How to Write an Autobiography autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi, especially the last chapter, has been very useful to me. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated or inspired? So that quote by Stefano Hardy and Fred Moden about having a criminal relationship to the university. I think another one is the last few lines of Gwendolyn Brooks's poem, Paul Robeson. We are each other's business. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. That is a guiding light for me. And what is your greatest source of inspiration right now? So I am still inspired by the summer of 2020 and the millions of people who turned out for what could potentially or possibly be the largest mass mobilization for social justice in U.S. history. And I'm still I still think we need to figure out what the lasting impact of that summer is going to be. And it's not it's still not determined. But I think that all of the movement building that happened out of that summer is hugely inspiring. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but Naomi's website is www.naomipake.com, and we'll be sure to link to her books in our show notes as well so you can dive deeper after this conversation. Naomi, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure and a huge honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Even as we understand the kind of magnitude and depth of the problems we face, we also should feel entitled to the power that we have collectively to change. And that, you know, left pessimism is just not an option, but we have to keep nurturing and amplifying basically hope, right? And also putting that into action together. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support from our listeners. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we do rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Deja Vu by Mitch. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.